Hi, and thank you for listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto. And uh, I am David Hostetter with Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter, and Lauren Latour. And um, I have so much information. I have so much environmental information just waiting to impart. And yet, uh, Stefan and Lauren desire to usurp me again. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, David, um, in the words of Kirsten Dunst in 2001's seminal film, Bring It On, this is a democracy, not a cheerocracy. So, Oof. cheer Jesus me. Just cheer me. <laughs> I'm getting increasingly frustrated with the lack of a clear pathway towards zero emissions that we've been, well, that we haven't been presented with by by the government. All of the plans that we've put forth or that have been put forth, all of the legislation, there's that commitment to zero. There's that there's that commitment to 1.5 or two degrees, but but we don't actually have a clear step-by-step game plan in as much as we don't know what's going to happen with each individual sector and in each individual region. It started to really frustrate me because I realized it's hamstringing us at sort of every level. And we're going to continue to be hamstrung by this lack of sort of complete information because it means that the government and industry allow is, is allowed to continue to kick the can down the road, especially when it comes to um, sort of like that phasing out of fossil fuels and that like managed decline or, or like any decline to speak of until we have this sort of specific sectoral regional pathway and an actual like understanding of what's going to happen with certain industries, we're unlikely to succeed in the way that we need to. I've gotten really obsessed with terms and concepts that people might find useful in this time. And so I've been in a list earlier this week and I tweeted out and asked for these terms. And one of them I got back was cosmolocalism, which I had to Google because I didn't know what it meant. And basically, it's the concept of global design, but then local manufacturing, so that people all over the world can create designs and even sell those designs. And the people with 3D printers or smaller, more local manufacturing could do the local manufacturing and augment it for their own personal needs. And to me, this sounds like a cool, interesting, and valuable solution and a, a useful thing to know that exists and is in the atmosphere as one of the ways we could be tackling this climate crisis. And so that's my, my thing, cosmolocalism. I forgot to mention last week, in connection with the battle against the Line 3 pipeline replacement being constructed by the Canadian company Enbridge through northern Minnesota, that a new campaign has begun to pressure the American and international banks that are financing the project. A total of 18 banks have a deadline of March 31st to decide whether to renew Enbridge's $2.2 billion loan. The campaign is called Hashtag Defund Line 3, and Tara Huska wrote of it, quote, Every week, we're going to ask you to take an action that helps put pressure on those 18 banks funding Line 3. We'll ask you to send direct emails to CEOs, call board members, take part in COVID-safe street protests, participate in projection actions, join online rallies, and much more. 
If enough of us take these actions together, we can make the company's funding line three feel enough pressure that they will walk away from Enbridge. So here we have another example of the oblique way that citizens in our society have to fight for democracy. Without democratic bodies set up to give regular people access to major decisions, regular people have to come together to try to convince these private institutions that there is such a thing as collective power that can be used against them. Since there's nothing democratic about the banks themselves, people who believe in democracy are forced to create that democracy through actions like this. These assertions of grassroots power give shape to democracy as they move. They build democratic forms as they create power for people whose communities are changed by organizations who know nothing about them. This is also an example of the way that bankers are able to come together to use their structural power to create money for huge projects. A group of 18 banks are able to invent $2.2 billion for a pipeline simply because of the political power they wield. And those whose lives are upended by such a decision have to chain themselves to machinery and mount public campaigns with strangers in the hope of creating a nebulous collective pressure to get the banks to divest. But the case of Line 3 also shows the truly violent potential of companies like Enbridge and its financiers. Aline Brown reports for The Intercept, for instance, that Minnesota police are trying to get Enbridge to reimburse them for $70,000 worth of combat equipment they recently purchased in order to battle the largely indigenous pipeline protesters. In fact, the Minnesota county that includes the Red Lake Reservation started buying riot gear four years ago, immediately after the Standing Rock protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. The Red Lake Nation is one of the major opponents to Line 3, and their website reads, quote, The Red Lake Tribal Council will preserve, protect, and maintain our land base, natural resources, health and welfare, cultural heritage, language, and traditions to ensure our children and future generations will continue to have the resources to live as sovereign people. North Dakota spent at least $38 million to violently force indigenous people to yield to the demands of industry in 2016. In mid-2020, the state had still not been fully repaid, although the company Energy Transfer, which owns the Dakota Access Pipeline, did give North Dakota $15 million dollars, for helping to smash the resistance with fire, freezing water, and attack dogs. In the case of Line 3, the Minnesota cops are saying that they need the riot gear and so-called less-than-lethal weapons as personal protection equipment as they maintain peace. To round off this connection between police and the power of oil money, In Canada, the supposed RCMP watchdog, the CRCC, has been powerless to prevent the RCMP from stalling the release of misconduct reports, as was shown a few months ago with a case from 2013 in which the police were accused of illegally spying on the indigenous resistance to a Texas company that was exploring fracking opportunities in New Brunswick. The Mi'kmaq-led fracking opponents who had set up a blockade, were surveilled and then descended upon by various species of police, some of whom were camouflaged and wielding assault rifles. 
Finally, it turns out that police unions are fighting the fossil fuel divestment movement in both New York and California because they fear that fossil fuel divestment at a state level takes money from law enforcement by impoverishing the state and that at a union level it hurts their pensions, which they argue simply need the greatest possible rate of return to ensure a comfortable retirement for police. sadly doesn't surprise me that police unions have an archaic and incorrect view of fossil fuel divestment, or that they're using their outsized power to push uh, for that which can, will only lock us into fossil fuels for an increased amount of time. Because the colonial project may have begun with furs uh, or spices, but it was perfected by oil and mining. And all across the world, including the RCP, RCMP here in Canada, police have sprung up to protect not the people, but property, and even more so the ambitions of colonizing forces, whatever those may be. And it's not just the police, but the entire judicial system. And to explain what I mean, let me briefly tell you about a man named Stephen Donziger. Donziger is a human rights lawyer who... 10 years ago, won the largest human rights judgment in history, $9.5 billion, in a case that at the time was against, uh, I believe, Texaco, uh, now is Chevron, the uh, Chevron Corporation, for their role in massive oil spills in Ecuador. And after the ruling, Chevron removed all assets from Ecuador and has simply refused to pay the indigenous peoples and the farmers who brought the case forward. And instead, they've spent, and this is according to Donzinger's lawyers, nearly $2 billion on 2,000 lawyers fighting the case and bringing legal challenges in the United States against Donzinger. The result of which, despite worldwide uh, support, including 475 international lawyers, bar associations, and human rights advocates, has seen Donzinger be left at, left on home arrest by a New York judge for over a year and a half. And he remains in lockdown, like in arrested right now, which is the longest anyone has, longest a lawyer has ever been held for contempt of court, which is what, the, which is what he is literally being held for, just contempt of court. All the while, in this whole 10 years, many of those impacted by the oil spill uh, have died of cancer or other related diseases as they've awaited this settlement, which has never come. And you know, the, the story itself has a, a few more twists and turns uh, than I've sort of said above, as you can imagine. And so for those of you who might want to learn more, I recommend Rex Weiler's dive into this for the National Observer, which came out last summer. But suffice to say, we should expect the colonial class solidarity to continue. And in these instances, we have to fight back, which makes that support of, you know, of the Defend Line 3 movement all the more important.
I was trying to figure out why line three and line five um, just haven't been as um, heavily covered by the media, haven't been as um, like vehemently fought against by um, the sort of environmental movement um, as, as other pipelines have. I don't necessarily want to speak to whether or not um, communities of water protectors are fighting against it because I, I, I'm not actually too sure and I don't sort of want to like pass judgment that way on a community that I'm not a part of. But um, but yeah, trying to think about why line three and line five have been have been largely ignored. And yes, I'm sure some of it comes down to capacity. Some of it comes down to the fact that these are um, expansions or uh, sort of renewals of existing infrastructure. But honestly, I'm wondering if part of it, and this is going to sound so silly, but it's like, you know how with naming of hurricanes, there's the sort of like research that's been done um, to suggest that people take um, uh, hurricanes and tropical storms less seriously when they're given quote unquote like female names or like women's names. And I'm almost so, so like for example, a hurricane named Charlie will be taken more seriously than a hurricane named Cecilia. Um, and I'm almost wondering if like part of the reason that we don't care as much about line three or line five is because it's called line three or line five as opposed to like Keystone XL or Northern Gateway or like the Trans-Canada Energy East pipeline. And and obviously like I don't actually think that was intentional branding by the pipe by the uh, pipeline companies in question, but just how effective it is because it the line three and line five sounds so innocuous. It sounds like infrastructure that's always been there, that always will be there, that needs to be there. Um, that's just sort of run at the mill as opposed to like these big scary projects that we need to be afraid of and that we need to stand up and fight against. Yeah, I don't know, just sort of a silly passing thought I had. Inuit hunters were recently camped out in protest of a proposed expansion of the Mary River mine on Baffin Island, having formed a blockade of the mining road and airstrip. The mine has been there for seven years, using ships to transport the iron ore from the shore, and now the company wants to expand production and build a railway to move the product more cheaply. The locals opposed to the expansion argue that narwhal and other wildlife have already declined significantly since the mine arrived. The company says it will not be able to turn a profit off the mine unless it is allowed to expand. Meetings to finalize the expansion recently broke off after local communities said the company was not answering their questions. The company claims it will pay $2.4 billion in royalties to various Inuit organizations over the time the mine operates. Others claim that much of that money is at least a decade away, and in any case, money will not bring back the wildlife. An injunction eventually forced the protesters to leave the area so planes could land. A large group of Baffinland employees who were stranded by the blockade wrote an open letter to the Inuit protesters saying they supported them. The letter reads in part, quote, This country has seen the consequences of entitlement and greed that have led to the destruction of the land for profit, and we are glad you are fighting for autonomy over your land. You've said that it is not the workers you are upset with, but the Baffinland executives, and we would like to say that our support is also not with our superiors in the company, but with you. On many occasions, we've looked around the massive piles of iron ore surrounded by miles of rusted snow, the colossal diesel tanks and the clouds of exhausted fumes that hang above the camp, and thought, what the hell are we doing here? (laughs) 
this is an example of you know the importance of you know worker solidarity with these movements and the fact that the fight is specifically you know with those extracting wealth yeah no i think we just um I think here on the show, we need to make a commitment to continue to follow this story because information has been really scant and really hard to find on it. Um, And especially after the uh, land protectors sort of um, ended their blockade last week, that was sort of the last I've heard of it, but it's certainly not the end of the story um, as the battle is going to continue to wage in the coming weeks and coming months um, because uh, because certainly this project isn't going to fold anytime soon. And um, yeah. So I think just a commitment on our part to, to continue to follow this and to try to provide as much information as possible. And and maybe potentially one of the best things for us to do would just be to reach directly out to the land protectors in question. Um, because if, if others aren't necessarily um, stepping up their game from a journalistic standpoint, maybe at least we can connect with them and give them a platform to speak on. That was a song called Broken Head by the artist Zune. Thank you very much. And now returning to the Green Majority. 
An article published a month ago in the journal Frontiers in Conservation Science called Underestimating the Challenges of Avoiding a Ghastly Future argued that we are still in denial of the, quote, scale of the threats to the biosphere and all its life forms and argued essentially that scientists need to come out strongly against the political and economic systems that their science says are destroying the earth. Their aim is to, quote, provide leaders with a realistic cold shower of the state of the planet. In their discussion on biodiversity loss, they write, quote, As of 2020, the overall material output of human endeavor exceeds the sum of all living biomass on Earth. This means that the sum of everything humans create, which is not alive, is physically more massive than all life on Earth put together. They write of the Paris Agreement, quote, Even assuming that all signatories do, in fact, manage to ratify their commitments, a doubtful prospect, expected warming would still reach 2.6 to 3.1 degrees Celsius by 2100 unless large additional commitments are made and fulfilled. They also write, quote, The gravity of the situation requires fundamental changes to global capitalism, education, and equality, which include the abolition of perpetual economic growth, properly pricing externalities, a rapid exit from fossil fuel use, strict regulation of markets and property acquisition, reigning in corporate lobbying, and the empowerment of women. These choices will necessarily entail difficult conversations about population growth and the necessity of dwindling but more equitable standards of living. Another study published in the journal Nature on the 9th of February about the Paris Agreement has found that in order not to overshoot 2 degrees Celsius of global warming, countries need to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 80% more than they are currently pledging. And of course, we are not even on track to meet what we are currently pledging. A report from the group Vivid Economics compared COVID to the 2008 market crash uh, and showed that countries overall are spending even less on green recovery now than they did in 2008. In 2008, 16% of stimulus spending went to low-carbon development, while now it is only 12%. That last stat is incredibly depressing, though I I am hopeful that a part of that has to do with the fact that what we've seen mostly right now has been more survival-based and that the bigger sums of recovery money uh, are still to come and that those we should move more in the in the environmental uh, support. But, you know, I'm, I've been proven wrong before. Yeah, I mean, hopeful, but but skeptical. Uh, last I looked at the, um, oh, frick, I can't remember the name, but there was that organization that was doing a really good job of tracking uh, COVID recovery dollars. Can't remember the website, so I can't plug it. But last time I checked or, or got like an email update or something, sure enough, things were kind of trucking along as they had at the beginning of the pandemic in terms of sort of distribution of Canada's COVID recovery dollars um, in the sense that there was a whole lot of unconditional money going towards the oil and gas industry, a very small amount of unconditional money going towards green energy, and then sort of um, a similar amount going towards conditional green and conditional fossil fuel energy. So like, I don't know, we can be hopeful with how COVID stimulus dollars are going to be spent, but if past patterns are, are any indication. 
it's not looking too bright here. Everyone knows by now that the Arctic weather has moved south, even hitting parts of Texas with temperatures of negative 18 degrees Celsius. There are migrants trying to get into the states from Mexico who are now enduring freezing weather. Millions of Texans lost power when they tried to turn on their heat, and Texas's energy department has said that major blackouts have been caused by natural gas, coal, and nuclear facilities freezing in the weather. The Arctic weather has affected over 150 million people and is being made more likely by the burning of greenhouse gases because the warmer it is in the Arctic, the more likely it is that this cold weather will move south because we're changing the wind patterns that have tended to keep that weather in the north. The Arctic is currently warming a lot quicker than the rest of the planet. In more weather news, the climate in California has now shifted unequivocally, with a report from January in Geophysical Research Letters showing that California's rainy season has shrunk and will stay that way, dropping more water in a short period of time and then remaining dry for even longer. A recent audit from the U.S. Energy Department is showing that a major nuclear lab in New Mexico is not taking proper precautions against wildfires. In spite of the climate crisis, Australia is planning to build an airport on Antarctica, supposedly to make it easier to move their scientists there, although the scientists say they don't want them to build it. Finally, the warming of the oceans is causing great white sharks to move into new places and devour new species. Any one of these sort of extreme weather events that, that you mentioned, David, is a good example of sort of just, just a taste of things to come in the next few decades um, and centuries when it comes to the impacts of climate change. But looking at Texas, to me, it's a really, really good illustration of the fact that just changing the president isn't going to fix the problems for that nation or, or any nation for that matter, because the issues that we have to deal with when it comes to adapting to the effects of climate change are so systemic and, and are so embedded in sort of every aspect of um, a given economy or a given um, sort of region's infrastructure uh, is that, is that the, the adjustments we're going to have to make are colossal and widespread aren't going to take so they're going to take years for us to sort of sort through and parse through and fund um because seeing what's happened in texas the last week obviously yes the trigger is the um the crazy polar vortex induced um temperature change and the amount of snow that's being dumped on a region that isn't normally prepared for it and yes that that's likely resulting from climate change potentially could be debated. Anyway, that's not the question here. But the sort of disaster that's resulted is a result of um, sort of systemic uh, deregulation and underfunding of Texas's energy and electricity systems um, and, and issues with sort of instruments um, and natural gas and coal and oil and even nuclear facilities. Apparently, there's like a lot of frozen instruments. So just just a lack of preparation 
for um, extreme weather events and, and just a lack of a robust energy system. Because like I said, it's like you can type in Texas energy deregulation and a zillion articles from the past two decades show up. Like this isn't a recent problem. This isn't something that one administration is responsible for. This is something that has been happening in this state over the last 20 years. Um, but something that's really jumped out uh, with what's happening in Texas is this lie that has proliferated rampantly that frozen wind turbines are to blame for the loss of power here. Um, and this isn't just like a niche Twitter rumor. This is something that if you look at uh, coverage of the of what's happening in Texas across all kinds of right wing um, media platforms, this is a lie that is being repeated again and again and again and again. And, and from what I understand, uh, reports out of um, Texas energy providers actually state that wind power shortages are like, um, when, when you're looking at sort of different energy providing technologies, it's, 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 it's um, experiencing the, the lowest number of shutdowns as a result of cold temperatures. So it's, it's, Obviously, we know it's a lie, but it is an outright lie. It's an egregious lie that's being replicated. And I think something that's not startling here, but just sort of worth dwelling on is the fact that um, I don't necessarily think this was even a coordinated campaign. I, I saw on Twitter, somebody tweeted out like, how, like, who's responsible for this lie and how did it get out so fast? Um, and, and the thing is, I don't actually think it was a coordinated campaign. Potentially, I'm wrong. There could actually be a consortium of white, of <laughs> right-wing organizations and think tanks that sort of coordinated this messaging. Um, but what I think is equally likely, or at least what can be blamed for the success of the messaging, is the fact that um, the right-wing population has been so primed for this kind of lie over the last several years. They're ready to absorb any messaging that they're presented with by their trusted media messengers, especially when it comes to questions of the reliability of renewable energy. And, um, and I know we say it all the time on the show, but like that is going to be um, as much as changing the infrastructure and uh, changing the labor force and, and shifting the economy is going to be a battle over the next several years, equally as much is going to be this battle of messaging and this sort of like reclaiming of the space of truth and um, and knowledge, uh, not only in the popular media, but but in our social media spaces and just in, in civil discourse in general. The thing that got me was how many people decided to blame the Green New Deal, which has not been passed anywhere. It's like you've decided people are literally freezing in their homes and you have like the governor going on national television being like this policy that is enacted absolutely nowhere in the United States has caused this. And like you're the governor. Get off this. Get like move away from this fomenting culture war and get to work. This is a crisis. People are dying. Yeah, it gets, it, it's cheaper to divert the attention than it is to actually deal with the problem. A new satellite made to monitor greenhouse gas emissions recently detected a series of methane leaks from various natural gas pipelines and unlit flares in central Turkmenistan. The company that made the satellite, GHGSat, is hoping, is hoping to become, quote, the global reference for remote sensing of greenhouse gas and air quality gas emissions from industrial sites using satellite technology. 
A new study from the Ohio River Valley Institute is showing that the natural gas industry in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, which took off a decade ago with the so-called fracking boom, has not brought prosperity in any sense to those communities that host the industry. The fracking boom brought economic growth in general, but the local communities have still lost jobs, income, and population over the time the industry has been there. This isn't to say that fracking has impoverished these communities, only that it hasn't made them better. The oil major ExxonMobil, in order to placate the green pretensions of the financial entities that own it, has announced it is going to spend a small portion of its money on carbon capture technology and appoint a few climate people to their board, while still planning to sell oil well into the 2040s. It remains to be seen what BlackRock and other major investors who have paid lip service to environmentalism will do with Exxon in the face of their continuing suicidal behavior. Because those are the people we have put in charge of this crisis, rarefied investors free from democratic accountability. The oil major Royal Dutch Shell has released a plan to cut oil production by 1-2% to per year and be net zero by 2050, and has become the first big oil company to court a shareholder vote on its green transition plan. It still plans to be spending much less on renewable energy than fossil fuels in the coming years, since it of course has to continue providing its investors with huge profits. Its net zero plan relies on buying forests, which are generally monoculture tree plantations and are not necessarily very good for the environment, but they allow Shell to say that it is offsetting its emissions with the carbon absorbed by these trees. And a Chevron refinery near San Francisco recently leaked up to 600 gallons of petroleum into the bay. To me, the incredible thing about extractive industries of fossil fuels is really just that they are that extractive. You know, especially with the increased mechanization, so much of the labor is brought in and so much of the wealth is sucked out that local communities really don't see much benefit. And this goes double and triple for pipelines uh, as all of those jobs go away once the thing is built. So, e so even the few that they do make don't last. And you know, th to me, this is the one of the great things uh, about other energy sources that require ongoing maintenance. You know, you, if you are a person who is taking care of, of wind turbines, you have to live in the area and your job is to constantly keep that going. That's a ongoing job that exists local to the community and, and can keep it going in a way that, you know, doesn't often, doesn't often exist in these more extractive industries, especially when they're bringing people in to do some of the more engineering work. I know this sounds this sounds kind of trite and like I'm making fun of people and I'm not, but like no one has ever got leukemia from working on a wind turbine. And like <laughs> when you look at anything related to the oil and gas industry or even the nuclear industry, it's like it's like rates of cancer and, and chronic illness are rampant. But anyway, um, the thing I was actually really honed in on when we were looking at the sort of the case of um, of Shell's uh, plan to to reduce their carbon is that sort of um the, the piece on um investment in nature-based solutions that, that david mentioned and sort of the idea that they're relying so much on forests shell strategy um this is a quote i'm taking from from the energy mix uh which is a really really great free um climate and environment related news source for anybody who's looking for one um but anyway there the point they make is that shell strategy hinges on plans to plant a new forest the size of Brazil 
in order to stay in line with a 1.5 um, degree warming like world. Um, and like, I mean, like I was like whining about not having a pathway um, of our own earlier at the top of the show. And um, so, so this is Shell's pathway and Shell's pathway says that in order to meet their target, they're going to require to plant forests that like plant a forest the size of Brazil. And like, that's, I, I, I'm at a loss for words because like, it's just so absurd. I'm not saying that planting trees isn't a good idea. Obviously I would love it if we reforested the world to the, to the, to the tune of, to the tune. If we reforested that much, that would be fantastic, but that isn't going to fix climate change. And it's certainly not going to make it for the amount of carbon dioxide that shell pumps into the atmosphere for, for the reasons that Dave said, monocultures simply don't suck out um, they, they don't sequester carbon the way a naturally occurring ecosystem does. And, and it takes decades for a forest to, to, to build up in size enough and biodiversity um, in order to, to sequester sort of like uh, quote unquote, like average or like reasonable amounts of carbon. So like this is, it's, it's absurd that anybody is looking at Shell's plan and saying anything other than like, give me a freaking break. No, the only way that we're going to be able to reach 1.5 is if companies like Shell rapidly um, and, and through like well-managed mechanisms decline in production. It's the only way we're going to be able to handle it. And, and anyone suggesting otherwise is, has got their head buried in the sand. But we know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, listeners. Unfortunately, we do not have time for all the wonderful, amazing, positive uh, developments I was about to list. So next week, I will list these truly beautiful things that have occurred that I simply can't can't say right now because we don't have time. Um, it almost feels like a bit. <laughs> like every week we'll be like, oh, we just ran out of time for the good news stories. Sorry, everybody. Oh. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. I am here with a, with a very exciting interview for us uh, with Magdalena Huiwiza, the co-founder of the network and co-author of the Justin Transition paper for Stay Grounded, which is a network to counter aviation and support climate justice. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you is that on the show in the past and sort of, I think, well-known in the climate movement is that flight in aviation is one of the stickiest, I think, of carbon emissions. You know, what I mean by that is the emissions that does not currently have a super obvious way to be wound down or removed from the atmosphere while continuing the same experience as to what is happening right now. And, and you know, again, say things like the electricity grid, which obviously can be done very, quite simply. And so, I'm super interested in this paper, the paper, but, but perhaps you can just give us an introduction about uh, who you are, what both State of Grounded is, and then this paper itself. Sure. So State Grounded is a network of about 170 organizations around the world. There are a couple of member organizations in Canada, actually, 
um, but most of them are located in, in Europe and it's uh, NGOs that deal with environment and transport and it's civil initiatives that fight against airport expansion and noise and health problems. It's uh, climate justice movements, indigenous movements, initiatives who try to foster train traffic. So it's a, it's a broad range of different initiatives who said, okay, we have to get together and become strong together in order to counter aviation growth and its rising emissions and actually to downscale aviation in a, in a just way. One that doesn't say, okay, let's hope that individuals finally take the choice to reduce their, their flights, but actually also um, says, okay, we need to change the structures. We need, to, we need to change the rules of the game. And they are currently very much pro-aviation, tax-free, a lot of subsidies for, for the aviation industry. And that's something we definitely need to change. And the COVID-19 crisis of aviation actually gives, gives an opportunity to do that. And so we created in a very long discussion process paper, which was now released in February on a chess transition. So this is basically our proposal for how we could get out of this crisis in a, in a way that reduces aviation, but in a just way, one that, that aims to protect workers and communities who are currently dependent on, on aviation and also on this mass tourism that builds on aviation. But just transition also means a broader process to help safeguard the future of workers, communities, and the planet. So just transition is not an argument for delaying the changes needed, but rather for managing them effectively, fairly, and democratically, and starting with it now. Because in the context of living climate breakdown and the current mass extinction of species, the transition cannot can, can only be truly just if it's also rapid enough to minimize these consequences. It's interesting because here in Canada, our major focus for whenever the term just transition comes up is with the oil sands, you know, right? Yes. We have, you know, we have the oil industry that we sort of see as necessary to uh, to wind down. But of course, aviation exists here too and all over the world. And in Canada, some of our biggest oil subsidies actually go to the aviation industry in a similar way to reduce the, the mm. cost of flying for, for individuals. And so I'm curious if you can tell us the, the, the principles of, of, the, of the just transition as you understand them and, and maybe a little bit about how they apply specifically to the aviation industry. Yeah, exactly. So we, we saw that um, there's a lot of discussion around how, like how to do a just transition in the fossil oil sector. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there are so many sectors related. So we wanted to also discuss how it could work for aviation. And of course, it's very linked to to fossil fuel extraction and, and tourism and even, you know, military aviation and even trade and transport of goods. So it's actually aviation is like very embedded in this globalized capitalist hypermobile culture and, and economy. So I think it's a, actually a very interesting topic to, to look at. So the principles we somehow propose for such a transition which would be based on social dialogue with workers and communities would include providing social protection for workers leaving the industry access to health care and income security allowing workers and their families to meet basic needs training and education the creation of alternative employment 
particularly also in, in the most affected regions, so like around airports and investing in skills development and retraining. Also, it would include halting new training and employment in the aviation sector, making sure that people who retire and or take another job are not replaced and providing financial support to airline trainees who have already accumulated high debts and have no prospect of starting or continuing their career. So we are actually in contact with some of those people, cabin crew and pilots who, who are in the situation and they actually also participated in feedbacking and writing this, this paper, as well as trade unions who also took part in this in this writing of the paper. But of course, at the same time, we have to say that a lot of trade unions are not um, on the same page as we are because many are very much focusing on the saving the, the jobs right now and what we think lacking this uh, longer perspective of saving jobs in the future too. Yeah, you've, we've seen a bit of that difficulty here uh, in especially Ontario with hydro and, and with some of the some of the pushback guards to switching over to more green energy because it would mean, you know, jobs in sort of the more uh, unionized fields. And of course, you could still unionize these the, the green energy jobs, but there is definitely some similar types of like trying to get people alongside. Although if people, as a complete aside, if listeners want to learn about a place that really has done this interestingly and well, New York State has done some fascinating work with its building trade unions, uh, and they are now in some ways leading the green energy transition in some really inspiring ways. Uh, so just throwing out that out there for listeners. Um, but to get back in here with aviation, you sort of have already answered this a little bit, so maybe you can just maybe put a slightly finer point on it. What is the state of the aviation industry currently? And then why, why did you focus on aviation specifically for this paper? Yeah, so I think this has been one of the major learnings of the COVID-19 crisis. I think COVID-19 showed that a world with reduced aviation is actually possible. There was a big survey from the European Investment Bank, and many respondents said that it would be easiest to give up flying after COVID-19 to fight climate change. So it was 40% for Europeans, 38% for Americans, and 43% for Chinese respondents, for example. And many of these said they, that they will avoid flying after COVID-19. So I think there is, like, there is a chance that behavior change happens through the crisis, but of course, also because online conference systems have been established in so many companies and we've got used to it. But of course, it's also important that the right political choices are taken now so that bigger changes in the sector are, are possible. So what's most important is that no more bailouts go into the aviation industry and that instead recovery packages directly finance such as transition, including the creation of climate jobs and fostering alternatives to flights like train connections and climate safe ship transport. Amazing. And so... This is, this is another question I think that is a little bit, I want to say a little bit obvious for for most listeners and for our conversation beforehand, but at the same time, I think, you know, putting a fine point on it is, is valuable. So you know, why do we need to keep air traffic low? Well, because it's the most climate harming mode of transport. And before the pandemic, it was also the fastest growing source of greenhouse gases. I think something that many people don't know actually is that 
I think many of us have this number of 2% in our heads and it's like, oh, that's so little emissions in comparison to other sectors, but it's actually more because it's not only about CO2. And if we count in this non-CO2 factors, we have about 5.9% of all human-caused global heating that goes at the expense of, of aviation. And half of this impact is caused by frequent flyers. So there was a scientific study last year um, from a Swedish university that found that in 2018, just 1% of the world's population produced more than 50% of aviation emissions. So we, we see a big injustice here because more than 80% of people have never been on an airplane. And it also would not be possible to say it is just that all people fly as much as the frequent flyers do now. No, we know that's not possible. So the frequent flyers need to reduce if we want to avoid climate breakdown. Awesome. I was curious if that if that study was going to make it into your paper because it's to me it was one of the the fact that like one percent of people or that eighty percent people had never flown. Those type of numbers were to me totally mind boggling. Like they make sense yeah. when you think about it a bit a little deeper. But the fact that eighty percent of the world's population has never been on a flight and yet they still make over five percent to me was amazing. Was yeah. yeah, just incredible. Yeah. So so this is maybe the one where we get into the weeds a little bit more, which makes me excited which is what would or could a climate just mobility look like in the future? How are people moving around in a way that is climate just? Yeah, I think that's something we often lack this discussion. And in German, actually, we've tried to establish a new, a new word, which is Terran, which would be, be like grounded or down to earth, traveling without an airplane. And maybe it needs new words to speak about, you know, freedom, adventure, encounters without saying no flights, because a negation is always not the best thing to, to create uh, positive visions. But yeah, let's try to envision a world in, let's say, 2035. And I would say things have fundamentally changed then. People still travel, explore, explore new places and visit people. But there were changes in political and institutional environments, along with a cultural shift that have minimized aviation. So people now only fly in exceptional circumstances and travel by alternative modes. Um, and these alternative modes are open to all, not just privileged one ones. Long distance travel to other continents is is maybe something a bit more special. It's planned. Um, it's undertaken with plenty of time. We have decelerated ways of working and living um, that make slow travel possible. For example, longer vacation periods or sabbatical years, a 25 hour week and, and home office options. And then I guess we would have night trains, very comfortable buses, sailboats, solar powered ships to make climate friendly travel possible. Maybe also some flights, but there has been a lot of greenwashing going on and a lot of hope is being created for green aviation, but it's very, very unlikely that this will happen in the next three decades. So that's why this is not part of our vision, because we just think it's very, very unlikely technologically. Yeah. I remember the name Richard Branson you know, what, 20 years ago, basically was like, I'm going to invest a billion dollars and we're going to have green planes. And then instead went along and just created a bunch of short haul flights across Britain and made himself billions of dollars. Yeah, this has happened in the last decades, always promises from the aviation industry. And especially right now when they're 
in need of state money, their greenwashing is really leaping. So yeah, I just would like to say, let's not trust these hopes that the industry is creating. It's just not going to happen. I mean, it is important that improvements are made on the technological side and that there's science put into it. But, but at the same time, we cannot hold the just transition that is needed now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like, you know, what also would allow us to travel uh, carbon free in, you know, 10 years or 20 years, if we built high speed rail right now, please yeah. Canada build high speed rail. Sorry, this is one of my <laughs> personal things. I've been there's been like talk about one particular high speed rail network that connects like a part of Canada where I live to like a couple other parts. And like, every time it comes up, it's still like $8 billion. But it's like, then we would have in a way to get from Toronto to Montreal, which normally takes like six in two hours, you could carbon free, right? If you build electric, although then there was a whole conversation about making a diesel, which to me was like, who builds high speed rail and then makes a diesel? This is one no, of the- No, that's horrible. Yes. And you yeah. know, $8 billion or euros was spent, yeah. to, was just given to Lufthansa to the, to the German airline. So it's like- you know, it's just given out for one year and they will need more money. And instead you could really build build alternatives. Yeah, you could have real infrastructure. So this is interesting because as we sort of mentioned before hopping on the actual call, it sounds like the conversations being had in, in Germany and the EU is, is further along than the conversations happening here in Canada in regards to trying to tackle this, this aviation in, issue. And, and maybe, maybe not, maybe it's also nowhere. Maybe, maybe this is a groundbreaking paper and really no one has got it anywhere at all, which, which I honestly, I think is, is probably pretty true. If not having conversation, I think in a place like Germany, which has, you know, significantly better rail tra travel than, you know, here in Canada, like here in Canada, we literally shut down a bus route last year because no one felt like doing it. And the, and you know, the Germany just shut down night trains three years ago. Right. Yeah. So, so maybe we're all in the same boat. And so clearly this needs a, I would say, a groundswell of response, right? Like if we're really going to take this one on, it's, and it comes really, it's an individual thing. Like this is an interesting thing about aviation, especially, is that when you have this conversation, even with, you know, your neighbors or your friends, even the climate conscious ones still are like, yeah, but I still really want to go visit my aunt in Dallas and I only have a week. And so how am I supposed to do this except mm. by this option? Or I feel really connected to this other part of the world that, I'm, that I don't often get to go to. And again, I only have a week or two to do this. I love the thought Lisa there about decelerated ways of living to allow for slow travel because yes. that to me is a, a fascinating concept. I know when my, my, when my mom traveled uh, for the first time from Vietnam to Canada, it took her six months. It was, wow. that's what they, cool. yeah, they, they took a ship across the Pacific ocean and then yeah. got, to, and then, and then got to Vancouver and then came all the way across Canada. And so, yeah. you know, like what would now be a, a one night flight was a half a year of her life. Obviously these days we have a faster version of that, even without this, but it was just an interesting sort of way of like, no, this, you're living while traveling in a way that we don't really have. And so how can citizens get involved in this movement? You know, how can people sort of step up and A, sort of work alongside you or with your moot network, but also B, more generally, just be a part of this conversation and thought process? Well, I think um, on the one hand, it is really cool to discuss this with, you know, with your flatmates or with a family and think about, yeah, 
what's your personal relationship to to flights and of course i totally understand that seeing you know family in another continent for migrants for example it it is key and often you don't get there otherwise but then really think about maybe okay where is it necessary what are necessary flights and what are bullshit flights maybe that's something we really need to discuss as a society and yeah and then there are multiple ways how to get get engaged in this movement so if you have a look at our website stakegrounded.org um, you'll find how to engage there are you can get engaged with your initiative or organization or as an individual and of course also, it's uh, really cool to think about, okay, what are actually the structures inside of Canada? I, I have no clue about that. Like, is kerosene taxed or not? Probably not. Are there any airports that are to be expanded and where resistance would be fertile? Are there any bailout packages that are being created right now for the aviation industry, which could be counted? I think the answer to all th all of those are yes. Um, I, I'm quite certain about the aviation bailout in some fashion. Some ways the Canadian government has done things has been to to more focus on generalized support for things, which has caused you know different problems. But I, I'm quite certain there's a conversation around that that as well. So I want to say thank you so much for both Tehran and deceleration. Because I'm currently doing a, a project where I'm trying to collect a list of terms that I think are very useful for time right now. And so now I have two more. This is great. <laughs> great. <laughs> so you mentioned your website. Is there any other way people can get connected and support your work? Anything else, last points you'd like to make? Well, you'll find us on social media too. But yeah, I'm happy to, to know if discussions move on in Canada and get feedback and get connected. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Magdalena Hoyweiser, the co-founder of Stay Guarded and the co-author of the Just Transition paper. Thank you so much for being here and, and have a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you. You too. Alright listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.